This is an RNZ podcast. Samoa's startling election outcome last weekend seemed to take most of the media here by surprise. Hardly anything about the unexpectedly close contest was reported in mainstream outlets on the day, even though many thousands of Samoan-born people and their descendants live here in New Zealand, and Samoa is of course a significant South Pacific country in its own right. So what then explains the big blind spot in our media that was obvious last weekend? This week, Hayden asked one who also noticed it, Siota Afili Dr. Patrick Thompson, lecturer in Pacific Studies at the University of Auckland. Talofa Patrick, and welcome to Media Watch. Talofa Hayden, thank you for having me. So besides the obvious fact that it's a significant political event in one of our closest neighbouring countries, can you explain why this particular Samoan election is so newsworthy and historic? Yeah, I mean, you know, there are very many different factors that have coalesced, I guess, in a perfect storm that's created an election in Samoa that we're unlike any that we've ever seen in the past. Since 1982, the Human Rights Protection Party have been in power in Samoa. Um, and the current prime minister has been prime minister since 1998. Um, and in this uh, particular um, election, what's happened is that in um, a matter of months, really, um, the current government has started to see its its stranglehold, I guess, over power kind of unravel, which goes back to, I would say, the beginning of the measles epidemic. Um, there was a lot of discontent there in Samoa about the way that the government handled that. Um, following that was, of course, last year when we had those three controversial bills that were passed um, by HRPP, which effectively changed the constitution of Samoa. And they were able to do this because they actually uh, control the Fale Fono. Um, I think 47 out of 49 seats belong to one party. So it's monumental in the sense that we've had a political party come through so quickly um, within 12 months to kind of challenge the status quo in very many different ways. Yeah, so that opposition is fast party mm. led by Fiami Naomi Mata'afa and it's a dead heat right it's 25 all with an independent seat that's going to decide the election so it couldn't almost be more of a cliffhanger absolutely so it's not like there hasn't been any discontent in Samoa in the past and people haven't tried to kind of organize to challenge the power of HRPP um, but specifically in this election, FAST has tapped into something in a strategy that's obviously worked. And there is a dead heat here, which is something that none of us had actually um, predicted. I definitely felt, and a lot of political commentators in Samoa felt that it would be closer. Um, but, you know, we wouldn't know on the day. And so on the day, what happened is, of course, FAST really kind of leaned into a party politic type strategy, which is not common in Samoa. In Samoa, a lot of the politics takes place or the politicking takes place um, in local and village level. Um, and so HRPP in the past have run multiple candidates and constituencies in order to give local communities and villages the opportunity to choose between HRPP constituents, which is really interesting because New Zealand used to have this problem where when we had FPP, uh, we would have a lot of uh, smaller political parties pick up a lot of votes but would not win any single seats. Um, and so it's the opposite in Samoa where FAST have been able to kind of take advantage of these gaps that HRPP have created by running multiple candidates. In one constituency, there was like five HRPP candidates. And if we had totaled all of their, the votes that were given to the HRPP candidates, the FAST candidate would have been defeated quite easily. But because the vote was so diluted, a lot of these seats have gone to FAST. So FAST are actually about 20 percentage points behind HRPP if mm. we're just doing a count of how much votes went to each party. So it's pretty 
It's spectacular if you're an election nerd like I am. <laughs> it's a pretty fascinating situation. And despite that, you tweeted on Sunday that you didn't understand why the New Zealand media pretty much wasn't covering the election, especially in our two biggest website stuff in the New Zealand Herald. Do you have any theories why there was such little coverage? Well, I think this kind of speaks to some of the issues that we have structurally in New Zealand in general around which uh, knowledges and which communities get to make the knowledges that we value. So as a country, we have to think about how we can bring in other communities, not just have them represented through particular you know, one or two people that you throw into the newsroom to represent the Pacific, but also just how we as a society value, um, you know, diversity and diverse perspectives and diverse communities, diverse forms of knowledge, and also thinking about what those hierarchy of knowledges um, are. Do you think it reveals something about the default voice mm. of the media, but that the media often will speak in a default voice that is often a Pākehā? voice and to an audience that they imagine to be Pākehā. Absolutely. And that's why I do I, I do sort of emphasise that whole idea of being reflexive around who has the keys, I guess, to the kingdom in terms of, um, you know, whose voices are the ones that get sort of um, centred in the media. And the default voice is Pākehā. You're right, Hayden. Um, and, you know, this is why we have to be, understand sort of all of these systems around how we produce knowledge, including um, you know, media publications and stories. Um, and that default voice um, comes from the fact that our country has a very colonial history. This dearth of coverage was all the more noticeable because of the absolutely blanket media attention given to Prince Philip's death. What did that reveal about the biases of our media? To me, it kind of demonstrated in stark terms the dilemma that we face as a country around how we understand who we are. Because what it brought is brought to the fore was this juxtaposition, I guess, of New Zealand's colonial past in very stark ways, in the sense that we were being told by the Prime Minister that Prince Philip was his death was such an a big loss to our country, um, when a lot of New Zealanders didn't feel any loss at all. Um, and the reason why she felt like well, I, I believe the reason why she made that statement is of course it's kind of an obligate obligatory kind of statement that we have to make as a member of the Commonwealth. And then ignoring um, the Samoan election is also sort of kind of an expression of New Zealand's colonial history because it was a dominated um, territory that once belonged to New Zealand's mini Pacific empire um, that, you know, why would this country, New Zealand, which is a more powerful country in relation to Samoa, which is a small form of colonial um, outpost of New Zealand, why should we care what's happening there? So it was kind of this interesting um, sort of visual that you can juxtapose um, in your mind, I guess, um, understanding New Zealand's colonial history displayed in this one moment that kind of collided with Prince Philip's death and then the elections in Samoa, which to me represented Samoa's kind of coming of age as a democracy um, and the coming of age of party politics. So you've got kind of the dying, I would say, connection represented through Prince Philip. And then you also have kind of the future because Samoa's democracy and its election looks like it's going to have a very, very healthy future. So where does New Zealand sit in that conversation? Some people even highlighted uh, 
the coverage given to DMX's death. I think Mikey Sherman at TVNZ uh, talked about how impactful that was to her. Of course, that didn't get as much coverage of Prince Philip's death, but that would have just as many people in New Zealand that would actually be impacted by it and feel incredibly sad over it. But those people's voices aren't necessarily reflected in the media to the same extent. Absolutely. And, you know, because DMX's audience um, in New Zealand anyway is predominantly um, people who have experienced marginalisation in our country. For celebrity deaths, it's not just like the royal family. It's also like who's um, passing do we honour the most? And DMX's wasn't really covered much by um, mainstream media, but I have seen other major celebrities have entire TVNZ bulletins dedicated to them in the past. So, yeah, that's uh, something else that we should probably be cognizant and aware of. We speak a lot about how there's not enough Pacifica journalists in newsroom and that, newsrooms, and that's a real and present problem, absolutely, to be sure. But you're talking about leadership, right? It's about having people at the top levels of organisation actually uh, saying these these stories are important. Absolutely. Um, so, I mean, I'm not somebody who's in the media like you are, Hayden, so you've got a bit more insight into that sort of process. But um, in general, like, you know, what we know is that um, leadership certainly does matter because leadership is about presenting space for voices that don't usually um, heard. Um, and so what you're talking about there is, I think, is, is something that affects most marginalised communities in New Zealand, not just Pacific. Um, and we are seeing, and I think a prime example of this is when we have um, an administration at the moment who's leading the country, um, you know, perspectives that are centred are, are women's perspectives, are marginal perspectives. We're starting to see sorts of legislations that come through which sort of elicit very interesting responses from the public. It's things that we wouldn't usually think about. For example, the uh, the paid leave for, for, for mothers who, who or who, women who may have a miscarriage, for example. That sort of legislation, um, you know, is something that we would think would be a given, but um, it had to be sort of passed at this particular moment because we actually have women in leadership. I think the same thing happens here or the same thing would happen if we were to include more leadership for Pacific uh, communities within the media as well. Which we're almost putting the cart before the horse here. We're saying, why isn't the media covering a Samoan election? We're asking them to do this, but maybe they're not even necessarily connected to Samoan and wider Pacifica communities back at home, just down the road from them. Absolutely. Um, you know, I I grew up in South Auckland amongst the Samoan f uh, community, which was very connected, and we had our own um, forms of, of media. I think 531PI, which is now the Pacific Media Network, um, you know, is, is widely sort of followed amongst our communities. Um, but, you know, the only people who are covering our communities are ourselves. Um, and so that begs that question around who do we value in this country? And that's the, that's the wider question that this kind of connects to. I mean, why is it that our journalists don't feel comfortable or don't have connections um, to Pacific communities, right? There's a bigger question there around, again, the hierarchies that exist in our country. Um, and so, you know, one thing that we might think about is finding ways in which we can build stronger connections between communities and broadcasters like Radio New Zealand, which does have a specific legislated mandate to represent the diversity that exists within our country. Um, and so I think Radio New Zealand could be a good place to start, Hayden. A lot of the coverage that there was in organisations like Staff or The Herald or News Hub 
was actually published through a content sharing agreement with RNZ. So it was RNZ Pacific's content. Are you worried at all that these content sharing agreements that RNZ has set up with these media organisations means that they might just opt out of doing their own coverage of the Pacific? I am worried. I think that's a really good point to, um, you know, for us to kind of consider because, um, as you say, it does encourage or at least gives the mechanism for um, these outlets to kind of put it in the too hard basket, um, especially because we know that anything around um, equity initiatives can be quite expensive. And if you're a commercial entity, um, you think in numbers. And so, um, you know, it's great that Radio New Zealand is willing to share its content, but then um, the danger of just um, having these outlets resharing what re- Radio New Zealand produces is the fact that Radio New Zealand itself doesn't have um, a, a huge amount of resources to be able to report multiple differing perspectives on and different angles from one story. Just like everything else, it's, it's a two-edged sword because we've got to be careful that it doesn't allow um, media outlets, even if you're a commercial entity, I believe you still have a responsibility to the public. Now, just on the subject of commercial media, maybe they say, oh, well, these stories aren't rating for us or that they're not being consumed by our audience as much as something about Prince Philip's death, maybe. Is that just a sign that there's no audience for it? Because surely that's not the case. There are 120,000 Samoan people in New- in Auckland, 200,000 in New Zealand. This is a big market. Is it just a signal that that market has almost disengaged from some of these mainstream media sources like the Herald or stuff? I think you've hit the nail on the head there. I think our communities have disengaged with a lot of these mainstream publications, even the commercial provide, well, especially the commercial you know, media sort of outlets specifically because... Um, the stories that they do report on usually are quite hyper-sensationalized and they're not exactly the most flattering stories. A lot of them, um, you know, will depict, you know, a lot of the problems within our community as a way in which they can engage their readership because they have specific readership and we're not that readership. And I think this also ties to the fact that our communities here in New Zealand uh, generally are marginalise and experience um, social and economic deprivation in a way which prevents them from being an an audience that these commercial um, outlets would want to pitch to because, you know, they can't make any money off us (laughs) in their point of view. Um, But that's not necessarily true, is it? There are are large organisations that do serve Pacifica people. It's not an impossible market to target if 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 you actually have a connection to it yeah absolutely and i mean i'm not saying it's impossible i'm what i'm saying is that it's just been kind of viewed as something that perhaps it well i mean if you focus on one thing you tend to miss others right and so um these commercial outlets probably won't see the pacific audience until someone demonstrates to them the value that they can provide for the outlet and, and so, come back, that comes back to leadership and all that sort of stuff exactly um but you know for a broadcaster like radio new zealand which is you know has a sort of a mandate that's kind of kind of broader it gives you the opportunity to think about this um in in your audience in more broader terms because that's kind of the the, the mandate that you're given and so you know there's a lot of complexity there. You're right in that we have to unpack that. But I think it's important for us to acknowledge that, that, that this is the, his, the historical positioning of our communities and that commercial providers may not have seen 
or they will, they will eventually. I think there are some creative Pacific peoples in particular who've been successful um, in tapping into mainstream markets, you know, like comedians and musicians and so forth. So it's not something that isn't commercially viable, but I think for news outlets, it might be a different equation. Now, you pointed to TVNZ's Breakfast as an organisation that actually got this right or was a little bit better than other media. Why do you think it was so different there? Well, to be honest, um, I think it's because of the efforts of specifically John Campbell and his team. Um, because John has been covering the um, the Pacific for such a long time, but he's really taken the time. Like, I don't know if people are aware of this, but um, he's really taken the time to come and and listen and speak to many different peoples within our community, myself included. I um, mean, he's also made space specifically um, advocated for the recruitment of Pacific presenters and staff members within the breakfast team. So his allyship is one that's backed by action, and which is why he's quite um, respected amongst um, Pacific communities. Although, um, you know, there are t- times that I've disagreed with some of the things that he's he's covered, but it's always come from a place of kind of understanding that our communities, are, um, he comes from, he puts our communities on the same level as he is in terms of the way he engages with us. He doesn't assume anything about us. Um, you know, he doesn't speak to us in demeaning ways. Um, and he really tries to understand and listen. And I do know, you know, structurally we talk about it being a bigger problem, but there are things that we can do as individuals if we are in positions of power and have access to particular resources. We've also lost some of our biggest Samoan language publications and uh, organisations in the last year. The Samoan Times was shut down in June after... COVID struck its advertising revenue. The Pacific Media Centre is going through a bunch of upheaval after the retirement of its leader, David Roby. How much of an impact do you think these things had on the lack of coverage of the Samoan election? I mean, to be honest, I'm not 100% sure. I think um, a lot of those publications, um, there was when I was younger, there was actually a few more Samoan newspapers, but the majority of those newspapers were written in Samoan, which is important for the continuation of the language, but we do know that there are a lot of Samoan youngsters here in New Zealand who can't speak Samoan. So they wouldn't have been able to access a lot of those news, um, those newspaper articles. And so the, the reason why I bring this up is I think it's important for us now to understand that the role then, if we're not going to support these publications, well, I mean, the government could step in and help support these publications and, um, you know, by resourcing them. But until that happens, mainstream outlets are going to have to help um, sort of carry the load, I guess, and um, develop the stories that our youngsters will be able to kind of find accessible. It just makes the role even more important, I guess, is what I'm trying to say here. Thank mm. you so much for joining me, Patrick. Thanks, Hayden. Thanks for having me. That was Siota Fili, Dr. Patrick Thompson, lecturer in Pacific Studies at the University of Auckland, talking to Media Watch's Hayden Donnell there about the coverage or lack of it of Samoa's election last weekend, and also the Samoa Times newspaper and the Pacific Media Centre at the Auckland University of Technology.